Hello and welcome to Heroes Unmasked, staff stories from Leeds Teaching Hospital's NHS Trust with me, Caroline Verdon. Here's a question for you. What do world-class Mahjong players and professional footballers have to do with Leeds Teaching Hospitals? Answer? They all work for the hospitals. This series goes behind the scenes to meet directors, doctors, support staff and everyone in between to find out who the people behind the masks really are. Hello and welcome. Pull up a chair. Uh, This week, my guest is Richard Moyes. Now, Richard is the general manager of Outpatient CSU across the Leeds Teaching Hospitals NHS Trust. But what a lot of people don't know about him is that he used to be a fighter pilot within the RAF. Um, Richard, so many questions for you, and we're going to start right at the beginning, if that's okay. Um, what made you decide to sign up and join the RAF in the first place? Um, so I went through university and and didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, I did mechanical engineering for a degree uh, down in London, um, and ultimately actually got offered a job by Ford and, and went down to Dagenham and had to wander around their plans. And, uh, and it was just a bit mundane, actually, to be fair. And I wanted something that involved the, the great outdoors and something with a bit of um, bit of pizzazz, really. Um, and that kind of led me to the, to the military. And uh, and actually, I wanted to join the search and rescue, uh, as in search and rescue helicopters. That, that was my big thing. I was a big mountaineer before joining the um, the military. Um, I still am actually to a, to a certain degree, although either I'm getting older or the mountains are getting steeper, one of the two. But um, I mean, it, it was really that kind of yellow helicopter that kind of attracted me into the into the military in the first place. And then as I went through flying training, um, those who kind of ten, came top of the class were streamed into fast jets and, and those that came, kind of came in the middle of the pack were, were farmed off to, uh, to helicopters and those that were at the, um, the tail end of the pack. Uh, went on to multi-engine and it was as brutal as that actually in the day um, and actually if you failed your final training then you got a p45 on the way through uh, it, it was it was like having a driving test every single day and three strikes and you're out so if you failed any three flights at any stage during flying training that was it there's your p45 wow and how long did you spend training for that at that point yeah, so the, the entire end-to-end training program is about five years, give or take. It's about four years with the training plus, uh, as in flight training, plus ground school, plus all the survival skills that you have to learn on the way through too. Uh, because if you eject overseas, you need to know what to do. It's not the same as ejecting over land, obviously. Um, so it's about five years end-to-end and cost the taxpayer about £5 million on the way through. It's a really, really good training program. And I have been a, a flying instructor teaching those baby pilots as well as baby navigators. Um, so you start off on uh, a small, light aircraft, a propeller-driven aircraft, um, you know, similar to what you see in the skies uh, in and around Leeds. Uh, and that's about a year-long course, really teaching you the basics of flight, you know, up is up and down is down. Um, but not really using the, the aeroplane as a kind of a, a fighting platform per se, but it's very much about getting the basics right. How do you fly in the day? How do you fly in cloud? How do you fly in night? Um, how do you fly with somebody on your wing? They're all very, very different skills. From there, you progress onto um, the Takano, which is kind of a Spitfire lookalike, a two-seat Spitfire lookalike. That doubles in speed, so you go from 120 miles an hour uh, up to a 240 miles an hour. And now really start to use it as a bit more of a fighting platform. Again, really instilling the basics, but very much a 
using it now as if you wanted to use it as a weapons platform. So you start to do tail chasing, which is kind of follow my leader in the sky. So it's not air combat, but it's the principles of air combat um, and time on target. So you fly low level over the ground at 250 feet above, uh, above the ground uh, and you have to hit a, a, a target, whatever that might be, albeit pretend if you like, so you're not weaponeering or anything like that and hit that target within 10 seconds or you fail that flight. Um, so very much getting the basics together at 240 miles an hour. Then you go on to Hawks, um, which is similar to what the Red Arrows fly. Um, in fact, it's identical to what the Red Arrows fly. Uh, and then you tootle along at a, at, a, at a balmy 420 miles an hour or seven miles a minute. And now actually you start to, to weaponeer with it. So you do practice bombing, you do air combat with it. Um, and you go where the weather's pleasant because uh, the jets go very far, very fast. So if the weather's, you know, kind of rubbish in Anglesey and across Wales, then you'll just do a quick hop into Scotland, go and have a fight in Scotland and come back again. Uh, and then from year, there, that's a year long course. Uh, you zip onto uh, your platform of choice. Mine was a tornado, uh, the Tornado F3. Uh, again, a nine month course this time, but absolutely, you know, you, your entire flying skills should be honed at this point. Now it's absolutely using it as a, as a platform. And what was it that, that pulled you to the tornado? What's the primary responsibility of the tornado? Um, so the, the, the both, actually, so there were two types of tornado. They've both gone out of service now, replaced by Typhoon and, and Lightning. Um, there were two types. Mine was the air defence variant, so I went and, and did air combat for a living, uh, and the ground attack variant was the, uh, the bombers. Um, we did occasionally escort uh, bombers, um, but kind of low level was their thing, and up in the in the in the skies was was my thing. Um, but that's not to say that we didn't do low level uh, too, because quite often we would escort them um, down in the weeds along with the uh, along with the uh, my GR colleagues, my ground recce colleagues. Um, in terms of what you know, kind of put me there. Actually, the military put me there. What I mean by that is, you go through your um, your your time on the Hawks at, at Valley and, and you get streamed there. So um, the very, very good guys went on to the single seats, the Harriers and uh, the Jaguars. Um, I did get a single seat recommend. There were three slots and I came fifth. Um, and because I did very well at air combat uh, throughout that part of training, then I ended up on the Tornado F3. And, and that was it. I didn't, as with all things military, you don't get a, a, a say in these things. You just um, <laughs> go where you're told. And what what's sort of your highlight of um, of flying the Tornado F three? Um, probably display flying. Um, so I, I had the pleasure of being given a jet and, and went all over Europe, uh, going upside down in front of crowds, um, which is you know incredibly pleasing. But actually, from a professional point of view, that is the pinnacle of flying. So to do aerobatics in a fast jet, uh, you can't come below five thousand feet. Um, um, to display in front of clouds, you have to do a work down, down to 100 feet. Um, and that generally took about 80 flights. Um, and the reason for that is if, if you get it wrong at 5,000 feet, then you've got 5,000 feet to play with before it all becomes a bit of a jigsaw puzzle. Whereas if obviously if you get it wrong at 100 feet, then actually you have That's no proper. time whatsoever. So it's, it's um, 80 flights to work down. Um, and that's worked down over land and over sea, um, because the more flying you do, and, and, and you get that as you as you go through your flying training, your your mind, your your eyes work with your brain to say a sheep should be this should be this big at two hundred and fifty feet or hundred feet. <laughs> Cows are this big, cars are that big. So so over land you build this natural picture of 
what 250 feet looks like. And you don't really need an altimeter to tell you how high you, you are above the ground. You know when you're low. You do get caught out, to be fair, over land, uh, particularly in Scotland with the young conifer trees. Because again, you think, you know, a conifer tree is about that big, so therefore I'm at 250 feet. And it's not until the, the warnings all start blaring at you that you realise that that's a young conifer tree that's barely 10 <laughs> foot tall and you're now skimming across the top of it. Um, but, uh, you know, display flying over sea, you don't have that, of course. You know, there's no sheep or cows uh, wandering around the sea. Uh, and that's a different skill, again, actually, to work down, uh, down to 100 feet over the sea because there are no references as to how high you are apart from the altimeter in the, um, in the aeroplane. I have done a tiny bit, a teeny tiny bit of display flying. I've done it twice. Uh, once I had the, what should have been privilege to fly in a Yakislev. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't know what I was in for in any way, shape or form. And I w- felt carsick for three days after I'd gone up because it was doing its twists and its turns. How on earth do you get your inner ears <laughs> to understand what they're looking at because I have I've never felt anything like it Mm. some of that is just you know practice and and use um there have been certainly on on some displays because display flying is where you put the airplane to its limit and your body um so at you know 5g normal flying I can chat to you as we are now I can move my hands around the cockpit that's fine at 6g wherever I've got my hand it is where my hand sits. Uh, so at 6G is six times the weight of, uh, you know, everything weighs six times as much. So your head is six times heavier. The helmet on your head is six times heavier. Um, so at 6G, wherever I've got my hands, wherever I've got my head, they stay there. Um, at 7 and 8G, now I'm starting to work hard actually to stay awake. So breathing becomes um, a real factor in, in staying awake and keeping the blood pressure uh, in, in your heart rather than in, in, in the in your toes, because of course the blood is affected by gravity, so the more gravity you put into your blood, the more it wants to sit in your feet rather than in your brain. Uh, and so you do a, a special anti-G straining maneuver to keep the blood pressure up. Um, but at 9G, I'm working so hard actually just to stay awake. Um, in terms of, you know, kind of you know, feeling that dizziness, whenever you went away on two weeks holiday or whatever, you would lose some of that G tolerance. So um, you would feel a little bit under the weather, not, not in terms of being sick, but you really felt it. Actually, it was a real workout after after two weeks of leave. Um, That's but amazing was... that you can lose it that quickly. Yeah, yeah. So generally, you never did an air combat sortie straight off the back of leave. Um, you would go and do a another flight that only kind of had moderate amounts of G rather than large amounts of G. And again, just trying to protect you as a pilot. Because um, falling asleep in, in an aeroplane that's doing six, seven hundred miles an hour is, is not ideal. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, there was one memorable display at, um, we were displaying just outside Gatwick, uh, and clearly we can't overfly Gatwick Airport because uh, there's lots of uh, the, the public flying that don't want their gin and tonics interrupted. Um, and we were, it was a real tightly confined display. Uh, and at the end of that, I was utterly exhausted um because it was just so tight so narrow you know really high g-forces and the display flight generally only lasted about eight minutes but it was a proper workout and and i did actually come off the back of that and kind of sat on the the edge of the airplane panting thinking wow i've physically worked hard in that one how does your time in the raf influence your nhs career um I think there's an awful lot of transferable skills, actually. And, and that's not just fast jet flying. That's all military colleagues. Um, 
you know, I think our value set absolutely matches that of the NHS. And I think irrespective of which armed forces you're in, whether that's the army, the navy, the air force, or even the special forces, I think probably integrity is probably the, the value that anchors all of the, um, all of the military together. Because ultimately, you know, if you say you're going to do something, then somebody's life might depend upon that. Um, and so I think our value set uh, and our behaviours, uh, our beliefs are, you know, exactly what the NHS is looking for. In terms of um, yeah, kind of fast jet flying specific, then I think, you know, we, we probably align more to perhaps the surgical teams um, in the the day could be going just as planned, as briefed, and then some, something happens, whether that's a malfunction or either in your aeroplane or or somebody else's or a catastrophic failure, something like that. And then suddenly it's, you know, thinking on your feet, it's that dynamic risk, risk assessment, that continual dynamic risk assessment, briefing the teams of the plan, what we're going to do, where we're going to do it, who's going to take the lead on what. Um, it's that third party risk for me in an aeroplane because if I if I punch out that's fine but actually where's the jet going to land you know um, so always make make sure that we're not going to injure anybody on the ground you know if we can help it clearly I, I don't necessarily know where the jet's going to land but I wouldn't eject over the middle of a city for instance I'd try and glide <laughs> it outside of the city before I punched out so there's that third party risk um, and again that kind of dynamic risk assessment I think when particularly when it all goes wrong and um, what what is it that drew you to the NHS when you when you you know decided right let's let's look for a new career? Yeah, so I, I was very fortunate actually that um, I kind of climbed the ranks and, and and went into kind of crisis and contingency planning, um, which was fab. Actually, I really enjoyed it. You know, it was getting people and kit and equipment from A to B in a hurry, um, and. And I really enjoyed that side of life, actually, um, particularly that helping the people bit. Um, and then kind of took that to, to Afghanistan, where, you know, my patch was not just the, um, the Middle East. Um, I had Syria down to Somalia, across the broader Middle East, up through Saudi, Bahrain, up to Iran, Iraq, um, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and a couple of stands around the bottom of China. That, w- that was the area with which I was responsible. And... And then anything flying with a UK plate on it, um, excepting a few a few aeroplanes. But again, they were they were mine to um, to, to task. Um, and again, it was you know kind of supporting troops under fire. It was medical evacuations, um, flooding, um, all, all that kind of thing. You know, aid, mutual aid, and all the kind of things. You know, th- those qualities, if you like, that, that we bring into the NHS. Um, I did spend three years in the private sector. To be fair. Uh, and absolutely hated it because it was all about the bottom line. It was all about making profit. It was not about people. Uh, and I absolutely um, uh, kind of love people. Uh, and, I, and I know that actually. So uh, part of my roles was uh, a survival instructor. So I was Bear grills, but a uh, definite face for radio. Um, but, <laughs> what do you uh, mean when you say a survival instructor? Uh, so every squadron has its own survival instructor. So... Fast jet flying, you know, it, it's great if you stay in the aeroplane, but actually you need to know what you're going to do, particularly if you're behind enemy lines, if you have the unfortunate, um, you know, unfortunately have to reject. Um, so every um, air crew colleague goes through survival training um, where you learn how to survive behind enemy lines um, and how to ultimately evade the enemy and um, and be recovered. Um 
my uh, instruction was, uh, or my instructing category was uh, Europe um, and the desert. Um, and the desert's a great weight loss program, by the way. Um, <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, it does make you reflect whilst, you know, you're trying to survive with nothing but effectively the clothes you're wearing, uh, you know, trying to find shelter, food, water. It makes you reflect what's important in life. Uh, and for me, that's people. You know, it's not finance. It, it's not technology or anything like that. It's people. Um, and that kind of really drew me to the NHS, actually. It's, it's working with all like-minded people doing their best for others, i.e. our patients. Um, and, and that kind of is what drew me to the NHS. And, and there's so many opportunities for growth um, in the NHS as well. You know, you're not just trapped in this kind of silo. You can sidestep to, to wherever you, you fancy your career to go. And so what's your day job now? So I am general manager for Outpatients, uh, Outpatients CSU here at Leeds. So that is, I imagine, uh, calling on all of your juggling skills. From, uh... Um, yeah. Uh, so I, uh, I lead a team uh, along with Karen, who's, who's our head of nursing. Uh, so collectively together, we, uh, we lead a team of 550 colleagues across uh, five of the trust uh, sites. Uh, in terms of activity, the trust sees about 1.4 million patients per year, outpatients per year, uh, of which uh, our team is responsible for about half of that activity. Um, so huge, huge, big numbers. The referral and booking service sits under me. Um, and two years ago, we probably took about 750 calls. At the start of this year, that was up to 1,500 um, calls per day, that is. Uh, and last month, we were topping 2,600 calls per day. So, you know, the volume and demand on the service is absolutely huge at the minute. And that's not just us, of course. That's that's the whole elective pathway. Um, so, yes, as you say, lots of uh, skills to juggle. Um, lots of challenges in terms of, you know, even just getting communication out to teams, you know, across five sites. Um, it, it, it all comes back to those skills, values and everything else that I learned as a, as a young lad in the military. So are you one of those people that when there's a crisis, rather than sort of go, oh, what are we going to do? You sort of get a buzz from it, like, OK, brilliant. Here's a challenge. Let's yeah. look at what we can. I, I absolutely love being in the thick of it, to be fair. I hate being on the periphery. Uh, I do like rolling my sleeves up. Um, but I guess now as a general manager, that's not for me. I should be on the periphery kind of, um, you know, kind of. Uh, leading the orchestra rather than actually playing the instrument. Um, but I do love it, actually, being in the thick of things. And, and that's definitely part of that kind of military ethos of rolling sleeves up and, and just mucking in. But I think, you know, in terms of when it all goes horribly wrong, I think, again, one of the benefits of my background, actually, is planning for when the worst does happen. Um, because, you know, you would plan a flight and every flight is planned and briefed. But it was never the same. The minute the wheels were in the well of the aeroplane, you know, just after takeoff, uh, all bets were off because the, the weather might not be quite as briefed. The tactics that you thought the bad guys, even during training, were going to employ, they didn't employ. And um, so you're always thinking on your feet. You're always thinking about you know, plan, do, see, act, cycle continuously. Or you might have an emergency, whether that's just a minor one that you can carry for the flight, uh, you know, something doesn't quite work. Or, or major ones where, you know, suddenly you, you get grey hairs and, and a receding headline, which, you know, thankfully colleagues listening to this can't see. But um, <laughs> uh, I've probably had my hand on the ejection handle three times in my career um, with a you know, major emergency where I thought, actually, shall I go, shall I not? And, and, and thankfully managed to land the aeroplane. But I would think probably, you know, probably once a year I had 
a minor gusting major emergency that actually you know really made you think long and hard about how you were going to get it back or albeit not thinking about ejection at that time um, and you know fast jet flying is unforgiving it absolutely is unforgiving you know you do have to think about plan b and and sadly i've lost many friends along the way including a friend who um, sadly died about about two months ago but you know he died doing something he absolutely loved uh, and you know wouldn't change it for the world uh, and, and neither would i to be fair um, you know you kind of just accept that risk that ultra high risk uh, day in day out you don't even think about it it's just it, it is a fabulous fabulous job and, and was very very privileged to do it it's so interesting how these two careers which at first seem stark polar opposites to each other actually have such a wide range of transferable skills that mean in some ways they're quite similar uh, richard thank you so much for talking to us this week it's been really interesting and thanks also to you for joining us on this listening journey i've been caroline verdon and this is heroes unmasked heroes unmasked is an under the mast audio production